we continue our study in Matthew 5, if you have your Bible still open to Matthew 5, verses 5 and 6, this is the text we'll be dealing with, and the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous pieces of scripture, and certainly the Beatitudes, which we are in the middle of now, are very well known by many, fairly famous part of this sermon. And what we are seeing as we looked last week at two of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, along with the two that we will look at this morning. What we're seeing is Jesus doing two different things, I think, as he works through his teaching. On the one hand, I think what Jesus is trying to describe is what kind of a person can actually get into the kingdom to begin with. And so we saw last week, you know, sort of the first step, you've got to be poor in spirit. You've got to the, come to the place where you realize you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God to get back into right relationship with God. And then, of course, you need to mourn for your sin. You need to understand that it is your sin that separates you from God. And, and therefore, since you're helpless and hopeless, poor in spirit, since it's your sin, blessed are they who mourn, all of that is sort of a prerequisite to get to the place where you realize the only way you get into God's kingdom is to receive God's grace through Jesus Christ to get in to begin with. I think these first four Beatitudes focus on how it is or what kind of a person gets into the kingdom. But on the other hand, I think all of the Beatitudes, not simply last week's two and this week, the two that we'll look at this week, all of them, I think, are also describing once you're in the kingdom, this is how the kingdom ought to be. This is how kingdom people ought to live. So that's what we want to do this morning as look at these next two beatitudes to see these foundational realities of the kingdom, not only how to get into the kingdom, but once you're in the kingdom, how do you live consistent with these foundational realities of the kingdom? So let's look at this next foundational reality, the first today, and that is Christ's kingdom are for those who are meek. You see it right there in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, one of the first things you're confronted with when you look at, at this beatitude is meek. That word meek is not the easiest word to translate. It's, it's a word that, that uh, um, it, it sometimes can be misunderstood. I think it can be misapplied. But the, the word foundationally means a person who is meek is someone who is not insisting on their rights. They're not insisting on their prerogatives. It's a person in some sense who is less concerned. In fact, you could say not that concerned with themselves. It's a person's not obsessed about themselves, of their rights, their prerogatives, what should happen to them. They are in some sense self-forgetful, so to speak, not pushing for their agenda overly, not uh, insistent upon their way being done. And I think there's a dual focus. Part of it is with God, they are like that, but also with other people, they are like that. 
And so what I'd just like to say briefly is I think what, what you have here is again, another beatitude describing how it is you get into the kingdom to begin with. And that is you have to be meek. You have to be somebody who is willing to come to God on God's terms, not yours. And that's the rub. I think there's a lot of us, certainly before we came to Christ, and a lot of people in the world today that that we live with and work with and go to school with, that they're happy to consider God as long as they consider God getting to God on their terms. Oh, I can't tell you how many people I talk to people about this a fair bit. Um, uh, many people basically, they're not, you know, many people aren't necessarily sure there's a God, but they think if there is a God, the, the way they kind of usually think about it is to say, I'm, uh, I'm better than most people, they will say to me. I'm better than most people, so if there is a God, I'm sure I'm going to get in because if God graves you on the curve, I, I certainly have to be in the top half here. And of course, it's pretty easy these days, right? You just compare yourself to a politician, you're in. That's a bipartisan political joke, by the way. That's not meek. That's basically saying, I'm going to get to God on my terms, not his. And anytime you have someone who is basically suggesting I can, if I do enough good and may I avoid enough bad, if I can live a reasonably moral life better than most people, then they think God then is obligated to bless me. He's obligated to set his love on me. And if there is a God, then I should be in the kingdom and I should be in heaven. And, and therefore the, there are people who basically want to get to God their own way, in their own strength, on their terms, not God's. And when you make that sort of inversion, you basically have created a God who is subservient to us. You reverse the relationship. Instead of saying, how do I get to God on the terms he has described, since he's the one who made me and since I'm the one who's disobeyed him, you flip the relationship. So now God is in my debt, so to speak. None of that will work. None of that is how you get into the kingdom. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done and if you're going to come to God and get into his kingdom you have to go to God on the terms that God has described this God of grace where you don't earn or perform or work for that love you receive that gift what Jesus Christ offered on the cross. And that is how you get into the kingdom to begin with. Not you, not your effort, not your works, not your goodness, not your righteousness, but through Christ alone, 
plus nothing. Now that's how you get into the kingdom, so to speak, but there's another sense when he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. What Jesus is describing is this counterintuitive upside down kingdom that the people who are actually going to inherit the earth, the people who are actually going to rule and reign in the remade world that he's, he's going to accomplish in the end when he comes again. But even now, in some sense, he's saying it's the meek, it's the people that I will bless and pour out my grace, the people who are not insisting upon their rights, not insisting upon their agenda, not insisting upon themselves, but who are living in this meekness. The sense in which they are living with the interest of others and the interest of God are more important than anything else to the meek. One way to, to kind of visualize this, I think, a little bit is, is, is just to look at what Jesus did. Jesus was fully God, fully God and fully man. When Jesus puts on a human body and comes to the earth to live on this planet in order to die for our sins, he is fully God. Now, he takes the form of a man. He puts on a human body. He takes the form of a servant. Yes, by becoming a man. He, he then lays down his life for us. But let's not kid ourselves. God was not obligated to do that. We were the ones who rebelled, and therefore he could have given us exactly what we deserve. But what God does, in spite of the fact that he's God, and in spite of the fact that he's been in perfect fellowship with God the Father from eternity past, he puts a body on, comes down, and when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you realize the night Jesus was betrayed, he's in a garden. The text tells us he's stumbling around in that garden. He can hardly walk. He can hardly move. He's sweating drops of blood because his body is going into shock. Why? Because he's realizing that the next day he will take our sin upon himself. He will be separated in some sense from Father God spiritually. He will experience the wrath of God that he's never experienced before. And all of this he's doing as God for us freely, graciously under no obligation to do that and yet he does it he's God but he's stumbling in around in the garden going into shock for you and for me and for our sin that's what it means to be meek the God of the universe stumbling in around in the garden why because he has put your interests and my interests ahead of everything else ahead of his position as God even, in order to rescue us from our sin. That is a picture and a personification of what meekness looks like. And Jesus tells those of us who've entered the kingdom by grace, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think we need to be pretty honest with ourselves. If you've lived more than 17 seconds in the United States, 
you're not necessarily a place that emphasizes meekness. We don't. I mean, I'm not trying to criticize our country. I know every country has difficulty, right? Uh, every country's flawed and has problems. I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'm grateful for many of the blessings to live here, of course. But in America, what do we think about a lot? Our rights? Ooh. Our rights? My prerogative? My individuality cannot be uh, cut into at any level or I get angry, I get frustrated. That's just kind of the country we live in. It's not in the air we breathe here to be meek. You, you, go, to, you go to any, you know, any sort of you know, self-help book. Go down to Barnes & Noble there on our Route 1, right? Self-help book is going to tell you, be assertive. Here's how to get what you need. Tell people what you want. Go after it. And what is Jesus telling us? Make. He's telling you, lay down your rights for another person. Put the interest of another person ahead of your own, Philippians 2. Live like, like Jesus did, right? Where he looked to the interest of others, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the incarnation which we just described. Put other people ahead of your own. Give up some of your prerogatives to help somebody else. And in some sense, do that like Jesus did for God himself. Remember when Jesus was in that garden, he, he's, he's saying, is there any other way to rescue these human beings, so to speak, without me drinking down the cup of your wrath, God? And what does Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. He was God under no obligation to drink down the cup of God's wrath for you and me? No. He voluntarily, so to speak, gives up his rightful position, the rights he would have as God himself, his prerogatives as God, and he lays down his life for our sin. And he turns around and says, you see what I did for you? Turn around and that's how you live, meek. C.S. Lewis had talked about what that looks like, meekness really is describing. He said, if you, it, it talks about humility. If you, really, if you meet a really humble man, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's meekness self-forgetfulness it's not about you it's not about your prerogative it's not about your rights it's not about you at all a meek person is so focused on, 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 on doing what God would want him to do and so focused on serving other people around them that they don't even think about themselves much at all That's what makes 
this sermon so challenging? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we ourselves, even those of us who've been put in the kingdom by grace, it's so easy for us to become self-absorbed, focused on ourselves, on what we want, what we desire, our agenda, our rights, our prerogatives. And the crazy thing what Jesus said is, the way to inherit the earth, the way to sort of rule and reign, the way to have power to, to exercise sort of authority in ruling and reigning under the authority of Christ in this world is through meekness, not raw brute strength, which is typically what happens. Well, that's a little too convicting. So let's move to the second beatitude here and we see it in verse 6 blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied again I'm going to take it in two directions number one how do you get into the kingdom to begin with and he says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. What happens is when you understand the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes are talking about what does the kingdom of God look like? What does the kingdom of Christ look like? You have to be poor in spirit. I'm, I, I'm helpless and hopeless before God. You have to mourn for your sin and understand that sin is the main problem you have. You have to learn to be meek so it's not about you coming to God under your you know, under your conditions, but coming to God on God's terms. And then when you realize all of these things, as the Spirit of God helps you understand these things, you realize that you don't have the kind of righteousness you need to stand before a righteous, holy God. And therefore, you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but it can't be your righteousness because you don't have it. You have to have someone else's righteousness, and that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you need to hunger and thirst for that righteousness because only in that righteousness, when it is given to you by grace, not only your sins are forgiven, but your righteousness of Christ credited to your account so that you can have a relationship with God himself. Tim Keller talks about this and he says this, in Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. In other words, God can say to us, just as he once said to Jesus Christ, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You see, to get into the kingdom to begin with, you have to understand that I need the very righteousness of Christ credited to me. What I don't work for, what I don't earn, not mine, his, I receive it as a gift by grace, and that is the basis of my relationship with a, a righteous God, standing, exalting, resting in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. 
it's only with the righteousness of Christ that you can ever be satisfied, that you can ever be filled, that you can ever be content, that you can ever actually get to a place where you can have this contentment and satisfaction being blessed of God by his grace in your relationship with God. Now that's how you get in to the kingdom, but it's more than that, I think. It's once you're in the kingdom by receiving the righteousness of Christ, you have to constantly be hungering and thirsting for that same righteousness because only in that can you be satisfied. You see, the reality is once you've been given the righteousness of Christ, understanding and believing that is the basis then for you making progress so that you become in real time who you already are in Christ. Another quote from Tim Keller, so helpful. He says, you see, the verdict is in. And now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because God loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people, not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can fill up the emptiness. And this is one of the most profound parts of the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of the Bible, is that you don't pursue and hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you can earn favor with God. You've already been given this righteousness by faith. And because you've been given that righteousness, and that is the, now the verdict that satisfies and fills you up, that verdict lived out in real time, you become more consistently righteous, consistent with who you already are because of the grace of Christ. And here's the rub, really. The problem with each of us, even those of us who are already in the kingdom, we are trying to satisfy ourselves with all kinds of things other than the righteousness of Christ. Some of you are doing that in your, in your career or your search for a career, or your hope for a career. That's what you're living for. That's what you think. That's what you're hungering and thirsting for primarily. Is that, and is it progressing? And are you gonna get an offer? Some of you, it's about a relationship. You want somebody to date and you're hoping for a first date and you're hoping for a second date and you hope the thing progresses. And the reality is you are hungering and thirsting for that and trying to be satisfied with that relationship. Let me tell you, it won't work. Oh, it might feel like it's working for a while, but then it won't. Some athletic pursuit, some academic pursuit, some other thing that has grabbed your heart. But the way of the kingdom is that if we thirst for the righteousness of Christ, if we thirst for that righteousness that we cannot create or do, that is the only thing that can satisfy us, not just initially when we enter the kingdom, but moving forward in our walk with Christ as we become more consistently with who we already are because of our reception of Christ and his righteousness. I know I've told this story to some of you will remember it 
Some of you are new, so you'll get the, the Mr. Personality story. When I was in second grade, I failed to move from Texas to uh, Detroit, Michigan. It was a very difficult move for me. I was so upset with the students that I was going to school with. I didn't connect with them. They didn't connect with me. I, I talked in a very thick Texas accent. The kids made fun of me because they were cruel. They were Northerners. They were Yankees. <laughs> Godless. <laughs> and I just had a real hard time. I couldn't go to school. For, I, I, I did not go to the start of school for a month. I, I stayed home a lot. Sometimes I could make it in by lunchtime. I was that anxious and upset. And somehow in the middle of that, I won this contest. I didn't really know what it was, but I won the Mr. Personality con Contest for my second grade. Big part of my resume these days. I then won it for, for all of the second, the entire second grade. I think that was like four second grade classes. And so now I am moving into seeing if I can become Mr. Personality for the entire elementary school, Fraser Elementary School, 1974. And I'm going to tell you right now, because I had had such a hard time adjusting to this new school, I hungered and thirsted to win that award. That's where my identity was wrapped up in. I needed it, I felt like. I wanted it. This gave my life a little bit of hope, a little bit of meaning, and I, I, I lived for it. And, and I'll never forget, they put my picture up on this jar with all the other contestants. And every day after school, I looked at my jar because what you did is you brought in pennies and you threw the pennies into the jar. And whoever had the most pennies at the end of the week would be Mr. Personality. And I just, I was obsessed with it. It's all I could think about. I hungered and thirsted for this. And I remember every day been, I would look before I left school, I would look at that jars and, and by Wednesday, it was pretty clear it was going to be me or the kindergarten kid. <laughs> Thursday night, I looked at it before. We were clearly in the lead. It was really close. I couldn't tell. I thought we were really close. I got into my room that night and I tell you what, I hungered and thirsted to be Mr. Personality. And I took my entire life savings and my retirement, a 401k at that time. I think it was an Abraham Lincoln piggy bank. And I thought to myself, if I take that to school and put it in my jar, I can win. And I wanted it bad. I also had enough knowledge because I was already in the kingdom then maybe that wasn't the best use of my money. I thought I could ask my parents, but I was pretty sure what they would say. That's the thing with parents. If you're not sure, they're probably going to say no. So don't ask. So I walk out of the house with that jar, with that piggy bank. I, I tried to hug my mom, you know, <laughs> so she couldn't feel it, you know, in my, with my coat came all the way to the school, I looked in. At the very last minute, I think the Holy Spirit did say something to me, like, why don't you put, the, put it in the kindergarten jar, which I rejected immediately. <laughs> Quenched the Spirit. 
And I took my entire life savings and I poured it into the jar with my picture on it so that I could be Mr. Personality because I needed this. I needed it. I hungered after it. I looked at it one last time. It looked like I was winning. That afternoon, they announced the results. It was between the kindergarten kid and me. The difference was one penny. And that kindergarten kid beat me. When I went home, I felt like the Spirit of God really spoke to me and said, look what you did. You threw all that money to be Mr. Personality. I love you, Tracy. <laughs> Why don't you put me first? Why don't you remind yourself of what I did for you? Because at the end of the day, if you hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Christ and you realize your position in Christ and you realize what he wants to do now that you're in Christ and you have the righteousness of Christ and he wants to make you consistent, more consistently with who you already are, that is what will fill you up. And the reality is, if I had one Mr. Personality, that wouldn't have helped me that much either for a day or two. But can you imagine? putting it on a resume after seminary. I was the Fraser Elementary School Mr. Personality. Hire me. Wouldn't have satisfied me at all. Oh, for a bit. There's only one thing that will satisfy you. And that is knowing that Jesus Christ poured out his life for you not only to take your sins away, but to give you his righteousness so that not only could you stand before God complete in his righteousness, but also that that righteousness credited to your account would also begin to transform you by his grace and by the spirit into living more consistently with the person that you already are by grace. And that is what will satisfy you. That'll fill you up. And nothing else will. The reality is, whether you're in the kingdom or not, maybe you're, I think both are true. I guess I would ask each of us, what is, what is it that you're trying to become satisfied with? What's your Mr. Personality contest in your life? Something that you're hungering and thirsting. It's something that you think, if I could just have this, I'll be satisfied. What is it? Because if it's anything other than Jesus Christ and his righteousness, it's not going to work. It's going to fail you one day. It will never fully satisfy you. And you will run from thing to thing, from pursuit to pursuit, in a frenzy to try to conjure up some meaning or some purpose to your life. And you'll be, and you'll be running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. It's interesting. When we don't build our life around the free 
gift of the righteousness of Christ, we tend to do a couple of different things. One of the things we do is we tend to compare ourselves with everybody else, which doesn't work too well. Or we begin to boast. And neither one of those things will satisfy you. Neither one of those things leads to fullness, to satisfaction. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's how you get into the kingdom, but it's how you live out the kingdom. I'm going to pray for us, because I suspect a number of us, including myself, probably are not living out meekness real well. And we're probably, I, mean, I know we're all tempted to thirst and hunger about 101 different things other than the righteousness that God provides graciously in Jesus. So let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. I pray that we would help us to be meek. I pray that we would set aside our prerogatives, our rights, set aside ourselves and our self-preoccupation to serve you, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, but also to serve others, to put the interest of others ahead of ourselves, Lord. And only then can we begin to inherit the earth, Lord. It's the upside-down nature of your kingdom. It's backwards to everything we hear about, everything we learn, so to speak, from the world. But I pray that we as a church and as individuals be characterized by meekness, self-forgetfulness. But I also pray that you would help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness because only in the righteousness of Christ can we be satisfied, can we be full. Lord, by your spirit, open up the different ways that we're pursuing other things other than you. The different things that we hunger for and thirst for but can't meet our hunger and can't meet our thirst. Help us to hunger and thirst for your righteousness and as we hunger and thirst for the righteousness that you freely give us in Christ, that that righteousness you would use to make us in real time who we already are by grace. Help us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.